Hello, and welcome to the Deep Overstock Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, ZB Wagman, and this week we have a special episode celebrating the release of Deep Overstock Mysteries. The game is afoot. For this first mysterious episode, we will hear work by Carla Lynn Merrifield, Lynette Esposito, Kate Falvey, and Bob Selcross. Our first piece is One Thing I Won't Forget by Carla Lynn Merrifield. Carla Lynn Merrifield has 14 books to her credit, including the 2019 full-length book Athabascan Fractal, Poems of the Far North, from Cirque Press. She is currently working on a poetry collection, My Body the Guitar, to be published in December 2021 by Before Your Quiet Eyes Publications Holograph series. Now here's One Thing I Won't Forget by Carla Lynn Merrifield. One Thing I Won't Forget I learned Saturday I am only so much recycled star stuff. Atoms of my body albeit an original mix of matter, date to one of the many big bangs of the multiverse. I've been feeling old lately, but really, people, that old? So said the astrophysicist on the auditorium stage at the Zen Center Symposium, an April afternoon's inquiry into... Nature and consciousness, a search for the adjacent possible, whatever that is, glimpses at answers to the many big issues of life. In a room crowded, warm, big Buddha boy, I swooned. Can you blame me, buddy? If two days later I pick at the cuticle next to my lauded opposable right thumb, looking for wisdom in dry skin, biting it off, spitting. To think, pal, I've been alive since the beginning, and I'll never die, even when our sun at last explodes. I scratch my scalp. Dandruff flakes off like memories. Childhood, adolescence, yesterday, and the day before that. In a blink of cosmic time, I am of an age of agelessness. Now. I make a covenant with mystery employing every ancient, recombinant molecule of my mind. Remark, wonders never cease. Our next piece is Exchanged by Lynette G. Esposito. Lynette has been published in Poetry Quarterly, Inwood, Indiana, Walt Whitman Project, That Literary Review, North of Oxford, and others. She was married to Alito Esposito. Now here's Exchange by Lynette G. Esposito. Exchanged, it is a love story, but it doesn't turn out with a lot of love. It was just before sunset every 24 hours to the second. She appeared, whispered one word, 
then was gone. I stood on the hill behind the house for 15 years just before twilight at that exact same time trying to hear the word. Every time a bird chirped, a truck rumbled, it thundered or something. I heard a start of a word like ka. Over and over I heard the same thing, ka, 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 like a crow or hawk or dolphin. If you take 365 days times 15 years, you have one big number. I figured one day I will hear the full word and know what to do. The sun made a half smile on the horizon, so I figured I would stand on the hill in total silence and concentrate. If I could not decipher the word this time, I would stop. I would give up trying to get the woman I loved back in my life. Of course, I've had this same argument with myself before. The time was here again. I downed one more shot and got up too quick and knocked the whiskey bottle to the floor. Visions of my beautiful Sophia at sunset flashed before my eyes as I scrambled for the bottle so it wouldn't spill. I carefully twisted the cap, set it back on the table, and ran to get the woman I loved back into my life. The sun was sinking. Shocked, I stood in disbelief. Fifteen years and now this. Ka, I heard from a distance. I'm here, I shouted. Right here. I'm coming. My feet didn't follow my command and suddenly I am rolling down the hill instead of running up it. I lay there on the wet grass. She called. I thought I heard her, but I knew it was too late. My shirt was smeared with dirt, and I thought I pulled a hamstring. The left leg buckled under me, and my knee hit a stone as I went down. This day was turning out to be one of the worst I ever had. Ka, ka, ka. I trudged up the hill. Fifteen years. Loyal. Loving. Trying to figure out the word to break the alien's cold. All for nothing. But there she stood. My wife, human, in the flesh. She hadn't aged. Kachoo! Kazundheit, I said. These were our first words after so long. I've been trying to sneeze for such a long time. When you weren't here, it finally happened. It is so different in a spaceship. I was paralyzed by fear. They kept watching me, waiting for me to do something. But I couldn't... I hollered, what? They kept watching you come back over and over. I kept watching you, hoping you could save me. Where are they now, I asked, wanting to embrace this young wife in my older arms. Dunno, she said, and skipped down the hill, as if nothing had happened. It struck me. I was inside the spaceship. Ka! Next is The Art of the Never-Ending Ego by Kate Falvey. Kate's work has been fairly widely published in journals and anthologies. In a very deep, understocked collection of poems, The Language of Little Girls, David Robert Books, and in two chapbooks. She edits the Two Bridges Review, published through City Tech CUNY, where she teaches, and is an associate editor for the Bellevue Literary Review. Now here's The Art of the Never-Ending Ego by Kate Falvey. The Art of the Never-Ending Ego 
You could, if you were so minded, dab another descriptor onto the page, something sunny like dazzle or a blotch of razory silver glinting in a naughty knot of cursive, a wink or arched curve of pencil under a dramatic swath of glistening fringe. The eye would be brimful and green, the hair blue-black and plummeting into an iconic wave, slender with edges, the dawn coming on, the night relinquishing stars." Whole pantries of noontide spill into kettles and tins. The cakes are iced with vestiges of sparkling and scintillating high notes. The brandy will have to wait, but its memory is wafting over the tart. Crumbs are swept briskly into a stolid palm as the afternoon wanes and cherries are brought devoutly forth. She did it. It was her all along. It could have been no one else. Had there been less blood... One might have considered that dodgy bloke with the plummy afterglow and the nervy howitzer eyes. Finally, here's The Case of the Radiator by Bob Selkros. Bob grew up with his mother, selling books in the Pacific Northwest. He is now working on a book about a book. It is based in the Pacific Northwest. The book is The Cabinet of Children. Now here's The Case of the Radiator by Bob Selkros read by Robert Eversman. Case of the Radiator by Bob Selcross. The great boy detective had eyes like a snake and skin like a worm. I approached him in an alley under the lines and lines of washing. He was staring up at the air conditioning unit, which was barely holding on under the window. I don't trust machines, he said. Nor do I, I said. It's as if they could turn at any moment, he said. Yes. As if they all had minds of their own, I said. Yes, as if everything we did was to suit their minds and not our own, he said. As if we were only living to carry them on, I said. We pondered a minute in silence, there in the alleyway. I've been approached by a missing woman, I said. He looked at me funny, and I patted his shoulder. Uh, Her sister is missing. They're twins, spitting images of each other. Only one is missing an... An eye, he said. Cold shot up my spine. How did you know, I said. She works at the pharmacy, he said. I clicked my tongue. Of course he knew. He had his grandparents. She pays well, I said. He turned and looked at me. I'm on another case, he said. Yeah? He nodded. Okay, I said. He watched the air conditioning unit for a moment, and I noticed it had deposited a fair pool of fluid on the gravelly street beneath. The fluid was rust-colored. It had a stale smell coming off it. I removed the little Divalproex sodium pill and held it in front of his nose. He grabbed it. Whose is this? he said. The pharmacist's, I said. What do you mean, the pharmacist? He said snappily. I got the sense he was spiraling into one of his moods. I mean her sister, I said. She's on it. He held up his hand. Divalproex sodium. Yes, I said. 3,000 milligrams a day. That's extreme mania, he said. I know, I said. He held the little pill in both hands and just stared at it. Why didn't you show me this sooner? He said. I mean, is missing woman not enough? I said. He squeezed the pill in his fingers. A number of lights went on in his head. 
he set off like a rabbit from the sound of a shot. We came into a public area and did not run, but walked as quickly as we could. I caught up with him. To the boardwalk, I said. The boardwalk, he said. No, no, no. He walked with his whole body tense like a little boy's soldier. Not the boardwalk, he said. The night market. He shook his head. No, no. We turned through a wet market full of tanks and ice chests and women smoking cigars and slipping out huge fish from hills of ice. They beat their cleavers so the fish heads flew off like bars of soap. The great boy detective and I walked shoulder to shoulder and weaved in and out of older people shuffling their feet and dragging their fingers through produce. I caught my breath. But if she's off her pills, even just for two or three days, won't that swing her into withdrawal? Maybe, said the great boy detective. So maybe she'll go to the boardwalk and need to buy some. I don't think so, he said. We came to the section of fruit and dry goods. The great boy detective stopped in front of a fruit stand piled with jujubes, starfruit, and cherries. The fruit seller sat reading a newspaper with his feet on a box and his butt in a soft, armless camping chair. The great boy detective stopped and stared. What is it, I said. He walked to the man and snatched his newspaper. The man spilled out of his chair and lifted his hand to beat the boy, but then saw clearly who it was and stood patiently until the great boy detective might return it. Sorry, sir, the man said. He had taken off his cap and held it now in his hands. We looked at the newspaper. On the final page, one night only, ride Dr. Z's dirigible to the forever world. And in a little picture, a man with a bald head and an enormous black beard. Zelazny, I said. The great boy detective agreed. We arrived at a white gabled house of two stories. The house had a lawn and a fence and a little wooden gate. The great boy detective knocked on the door and a voice yelled at us from inside to come in. Here were two getting up in age, bundled in their armchairs and shivering. The floor in front of them was stained with the heat and now the absence of a radiator. We're so happy you're here, said the husband, his expression like a happy little lamb. We've been so cold, said the wife, so c cold. Have you any notion as to where the radiator fled, said the great boy detective. Not I, said the husband. Not I, said the wife. The great boy detective tried every window and inspected every door. The two of us conspired in the kitchen. Do you pity the old, he said. I, I must admit, I never think about the old. May I whisper you a secret, he said. I bent my ear. He stood up on his toes. I have two at home, he said. He had told me this before. He seemed to find ways of telling me every few months. He had no one else to tell it to. He walked through the kitchen, trailing his fingers on the counter tiles, from smooth to grout, smooth to grout, until he came to the cupboards. The funny thing, he said, contrary to our deepest fears, the old almost never leave their house. Sure they do, I said. How else would they escape? They don't escape, he said. They stay. The great boy detective held his finger before his lips and prepared his fingers on the final cupboard's handle. He indicated my gun. 
I prepared it at the cupboard. With supreme enunciation, the great boy detective mouthed one, two, three, then flung open the cupboard. An enormous man leapt from the cupboard and onto the floor. Resembling a human hand, he spun around. He was like a frog made of white skin. His eyes were enormous. He was perhaps ninety years old. I trained my gun, and we pursued him up the stairs. However, upon reaching the second floor, the great boy detective did not immediately follow the breathing, which was obviously coming from the room at the end of the hall, but detoured to the bathroom. What are you doing? I said, my gun still ready and aimed in the direction of the breathing. I leaned against the doorframe of the bathroom. The great boy detective was standing on a small stool to reach the medicine cabinet. Did you see that man's eyes? He said. Not at the moment, I said. I had been too afraid of the man's nakedness. If you do not keep machines oiled, said the great boy detective, they will break. We are at the brink of a destruction because of the lack of concern for the aged. He rifled through the medicine cabinet. A number of the orange RX bottles fell into the sink. Finally, he obtained a tiny white bottle with a teal nipple lid, which he promptly unscrewed. By Motroprost, he said. He leaned his head back, pulled down his eyelid, and shot drops from the bottle inside. Blinking, he squirt more drops in his hand and extended his hand toward me. I smelled it. Smells like water, I said. It is water, he said. He handed me the little bottle. I glanced at the label. By Motroprost. Room temperature? Hairy. Uh, so what? It's solution? I said. He looked at me like I was a chimpanzee in a birdcage. You don't mix bimotroprost with water, he said. You're saying someone's tampered with it? Yes, but who? Those two downstairs? He pointed at the tight seam around the nozzle of the bottle, and there was no sign of damage at all. Then, do you mean the pharmacist? He nodded patiently, or distracted. That's exactly who I mean, he said. He reached into the cabinet again, and this time slid out a second identical bottle and shook it. Nearly empty, he said, and look. I looked at the label. This expired today. Yes, uh, I don't understand. So the pharmacist sent the new dose a week early, and those two bumblers downstairs cracked a new one open. Hey, nobody likes squeezing out those last few drops, do they? Like squeezing blood from a stone. The great boy detective shrugged. Nobody likes being cheated with water, he said. He always got me. I was like a mosquito in his hands. I still held my gun, but it drooped. And in the silence, the back room lungs swelled like a cave full of bats. Shuddering, I pretended I was only cracking my neck. So she planned this months ago, I said. Yes, I believe that's the case, he said. He popped the near-empty bottle in his pocket, then pointed at the one in my hands. You hold on to that fake one. We'll need it for evidence. He turned in the direction of the breathing, as if it had only just started. Well, he said, no sense in delaying it any further. He shut the medicine cabinet and came out of the bathroom. We walked down the hallway, and he put his hand on the door and looked at my gun. When he pushed it open, I held out my gun and stepped in first. The man from the cabinet was now on the floor by the window. He held his legs to his chest, and his chest swelled in and out. What light came in through the window made the stray hairs of his skin glimmer like a spider's web after rain. 
I don't want to shoot you, I said. The man did not stir. He kept his eyes closed and his head down. Have you been in great pain? said the great boy detective. The man looked like an empty glove. He peeked out from under his hands. His eyes looked like unpolished brass. It's unfair, isn't it? said the great boy detective, who came to kneel beside the man. He took the little bottle and unscrewed the teal lid, then gently pulled the man's eyelids up. They unfolded like flaps. I kept my gun trained forward, but for the sake of the man's privacy, turned my head away. When it was over, the man tucked his eyes into his palms, and his shoulders began to shudder. After giving him a few moments, we led him back down the stairs. The man came to his post in front of the recliners, and the couple hungrily removed their slippers and socks. You found it, said the husband. Thank God, said the wife. We won't freeze. The man arranged himself more perfectly on his knees and elbows, with his forehead resting on the backs of his thumbs. The husband, shivering like a young animal, tried to scoot his easy chair closer to the radiator. The wife rested her heel on the old man's tailbone. As he inhaled, her foot tilted, and as he exhaled, it straightened. "'He's been in real pain,' said the great boy detective. He nodded to me, and I produced the counterfeit bottle. "'Someone has tampered with your medications,' he said. I squeezed a little of the bottle's contents into my palm and let both the wife and husband smell it. "'I smell nothing,' said the husband. "'Smells like water,' said the wife. "'It is water,' said the great boy detective. He dropped the empty bottle in the husband's lap. "'Use this one instead. There's a little bit left,' he said. I noticed a puddle of something collecting under the old man's face. It gathered on the floor between his elbows, a small pool of tears— The build-up in his eyes had finally released. When it became dark, we strolled through the neon night market and ate red bean waffles with tiny wooden forks. The night market sellers were a great deal more showy than those in your typical wet market. Vendors fired up their food stands under the night sky and called out to each other in couplets of poetry. Ten dumplings a day, one would shout. Keeps the doctor at bay! The next would respond. Children walked around with shapes of the president's faces drawn in sugar and held on a stick. Street musicians were chased out, but quietly snuck back in. Under a quieter blue light, a stall of live fish. The great boy detective stopped at the tank of eels. He put his hands and face against the glass. The tank was big enough to fit him inside, but instead of him inside, it was a dozen writhing eels. I poked at my waffle. True, it was our tradition to always celebrate after a case, but still, we had a missing woman on our hands. I don't understand, I said. How is helping you with appliances helping me with a woman? He did not turn away from the eels. He sighed, which fogged up the glass. Thus obscured, their eyes were like black beads in a storm. What did we learn today about the radiator, he said. The radiator... "'Has glaucoma,' I said. "'Is this common?' he said. I shrugged. Nearby, an older bearded man handed out red miniature fishing nets to six girls surrounding a small tub of clownfish. "'Maybe,' I said. "'Isn't that just what happens to you when you get old?' The great boy detective shook his head. "'Medications,' he said. "'Whether it is a radiator, 
planer or a sawhorse, there is proper care and improper care. Those two bimbos wouldn't know proper care if it burst through their stomachs. That's why we have doctors and pharmacies. He turned away from the eels. I'm enjoying the night market, he said. He grabbed me by the sleeve and pulled me around like I was his brother. And how many days do we have? He said. Uh, two days now. We slipped through the dense crowd. The great boy detective then suddenly stopped. We stared at a balloon salesman. In a sea of perhaps a thousand heads, there arose a large stack of balloons. They were so brightly colored, it was as if they were not made of latex, but of shined porcelain. They were bigger than basketballs, and they were about thirty in total, in pink and green and blue and yellow and purple. There were enough balloons, perhaps, to lift a small child into the sky. I want one, said the great boy detective. But we were frozen in a sea of eyes, and the balloons drifted away. I lifted the great boy detective onto my shoulders, pursuing the balloon man we bottlenecked in an alley. It was as if humankind would overwhelm the city and our bodies would burst through the walls. By the time we had escaped the alley, the balloon man had already vanished. We had come to the aqueduct, wide enough for only two passing gondoliers at a time. The balloon man must have crossed one of the footbridges and slipped away into another alley. I lowered the great boy detective to stand on his own. There was a kind, older pinwheel salesman with his pinwheels arranged beside the canal. I motioned toward the man, but the great boy detective's watch alarm beeped. How, how many days? W one more time, he said. Uh, two, I said. See you tomorrow, he said. He left through the alleys toward his grandparents' house. Heading home, I caught sight of something, like a small creature rolling around in the dark. When I touched it, it was only paper. I unfolded it. Surrounded by tigers and flames on the page was the great Zelazny, staring back at me. This concludes episode one of our special event celebrating the release of our 13th issue of Deep Overstock, Mysteries. You've been listening to the Deep Overstock Fiction Podcast. Our theme music is the song Shibuya by Bad Snacks. Join us again next week, and don't forget to submit for our next issue, Future, before May 31st. Visit deepoverstock.com submissions for specific guidelines.